The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good evening, Heritage. How you guys doing tonight? Good to be with you. Do me a favor. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Daniel. We're going to talk about how to approach the book of Daniel. Um, the shortest of the major prophets, but probably the most read and most, uh, uh, most, most commonly uh, appreciated because of some of the grand stories that are in it. And while you're turning there, I'm going to warn you also, we're going to at some point be in Jeremiah 29 as well. So if you want to plan ahead, do that. A um, couple of quick announcements. Remember, Friday night is our Good Friday service. It will be at the main sanctuary um, at 6.30. Correct, Aaron? Is that right? 6.30, Friday night. Um, so make sure that you... Man, I, I, I really can't stress this enough. Um, if there was one service that I would never want to miss on a given calendar year um, here at Heritage, it would be that service. I just think that the Good Friday service every year is just a special time. So... Um, if you haven't made it to our Good Friday service, I really want to encourage you to come on out. Um, and then obviously this weekend is Easter, so Easter Sunday. Um, service is one service, not two as per usual, one service at 10 a.m. And uh, we also have a, a, a sunrise service in this room, actually, uh, Easter Sunday at 6.30 a.m. So uh, keep that in mind. Though Sam's doing that, is that right, Aaron? Yeah, that's going to be interesting. So, um, so our, our, our two primary worship leaders are both overdue at this point. Well, their wives are now currently overdue um, and expecting babies. And they keep having, like Sam was going to be leading worship tonight. Wife was having contractions. He went home. The other day it was the other way around with Mitch. So we don't know what we're going to have this weekend. We might be doing full-on acapella worship this weekend if we lose both our guys. We really don't know. It's going to be interesting, but whatever it is, it'll be exactly what God had planned, and we'll celebrate anyway. Amen? They didn't have bands on Easter Sunday, but they got the good news. Amen? So uh, that's what we're going to do. So um, be praying for them, if you would. Um, yeah, I don't know who's going to do that 630 service, because it ain't going to be me. But um, somebody's going <laughs> to. Aaron! <laughs> and let it be done. There we go. <laughs> we have voted, Aaron. Sorry. Hey, I'm going to read to you quickly a text before we open in prayer. <coughs> and I'm going to try not to cough my way quite as much um, this tonight as I did on, on Sunday. It's been a little bit better. Um, you want to know something gross? When I got home on Sunday, my iPad screen was totally sticky because I had cough drops in my mouth the entire time, which makes you more and more and more. I got home and I'm like, let me turn on the iPad and my finger just stuck when I went to go swipe it. It was disgusting. So we'll see. <laughs> Might happen tonight too. Um, Psalm chapter eight. Let me read this to you. Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor and you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In Psalm chapter 8, we get this beautiful song, poem, written about the creative order. That God, when he created man, made him a little lower than the angels, but gave him dominion over everything on earth. And that psalm declares that God is the sovereign God over all things, and that the authority man has is granted to him by God, meaning we are subservient to. 
We are viceroys, ambassadors for the true king. And this is the created order, the way the earth was intended to be. But what happens, what does it look like if we step out of that? If man assumes his power, runs with his power, makes his power and authority about him, becomes consumed with his power, instead of serving under the given power of God, steps out of that and decides, I will exert my power how I choose, when I choose, to make sure that my name is esteemed and great among the earth. What does that look like? That's what the book of Daniel is going to show us. Let's open in prayer as we, can, uh, as we begin to look at how to approach this uh, pretty remarkable book. God, we just pray right now, Lord, that you would give us your grace that you would teach us, that you would awaken um, hearts and emotions to your goodness, that we would be in awe at your word. Some of these, Lord, are stories that we've heard, some of us, since we were little kids. But I pray that tonight your word would be made new, that you would teach us the living word, your word, that you would open our eyes to the beauty of who you are and what you're doing and what our role is within your kingdom, and that you would teach your people. So, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O my King, my Rock, and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. So, the book of Daniel is really kind of divided into a couple of different sections. The the first major division in the book of Daniel, you might say, entails chapters 1 through 6. And it's really stories. Uh, and stories specifically about Daniel and his three friends. Any Sunday school people want to give me those names? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as well as the stories of the wicked kings that these men were under during this particular time. And then the book takes a little bit of a turn. And chapters 7 through 12 are more about the visions that are given to Daniel and how these things play out, the interpretations given to Daniel about the kings and kingdoms, not only that he lives under at that time, but maybe there's even application to us in it. There's weird parallels and weird symmetries in the book. Um, There's a lot of things that go from one to another. Like, for example, um, chapter one in the original language, the the book of Daniel, chapter one is written in Hebrew. Chapter two through seven are written in Aramaic, which is a common language in that day. And then chapter eight through 12 goes back to Hebrew. There's parallels between the stories. Chapter 6 is paralleled in chapter 2, or as we're going to see, excuse me, in chapter 3, as we're going to see. And there's seemingly similar stories that are going on over and over and over as we go through the story. So here's what I want to do. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) That was a good one. Here's what I want to do. I'm just going to walk you through chapter by chapter what is just the general narrative, what is the general story, if you will, that takes place in each of those chapters, maybe point out a thing here or there, but nothing really revolutionary for, or revolutionary for the most of you. Most of you have read these stories a million times, but then what I want to do when we're done is step back and take a look at, so how do we approach these things today? Um, because there's a lot of debate on how some of these things are used biblically. There's a lot of debate on how to interpret certain things, on what the application for some of these things can be. And Christians have argued about some of this stuff for a really, really long time. And so we're going to try to step back at the end and just say, man, what's God doing here? Uh, And in the overall narrative of all scripture, what is it that God's telling us? And why does this matter today? Why does Daniel and the lion's den matter to us today? So that's what we're going to do. So In the book of Daniel, we start out with chapter 1. As I told you, it's the story of Daniel and his three friends. Their names again are? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That is correct. Um, This book takes place during the time of Babylonian captivity. So this is the story of how some of these Jewish men, what their experience in exile in Babylonian captivity under these different kings was like. And what we know early on, when you go into chapter 1, as they're going through the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, here with uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, (coughs) excuse me, we see that early on, these men are identified as being really skilled, really gifted. 
whether it be for leadership qualities or for their wisdom or whatever the case may be, they seem to have stood out among the rest. And so they're not your average exile. These men are selected to come in and actually participate as servants inside the actual palace of Nebuchadnezzar. They're, they're slaves, yes, but positions of some kind of influence or at least servitude on a much higher level within the kingdom there of Nebuchadnezzar here in the Babylonians. And keep in mind too, by the way, <coughs> this kingdom is massive. I mean, historians even to this day still look with awe at the grandeur of what they accomplished when they built this Babylonian empire. It was massive. It was spectacular. It wasn't just rule by military authority, but they had brought everything from the arts to a new high level to things that we still think about or hear about today, like the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, like the influence that Babylon had cannot be overstated. It was a massive, massive kingdom at the time. The kind of kingdom that if we were alive during that time looking at it, we would probably think, Man, they're not going anywhere anytime soon. This kingdom's sticking around forever. It's a common mistake that almost everyone in every major kingdom throughout the history of humanity has made. The Greeks, the, the Medes, the Persians, the Romans, the Americans. We'll be here forever. We'll be in control forever. We've got the kingdom that will now rule into eternity. And that's not exactly true. But the kingdom at this time... Massive. And these guys are brought into the palace. And as they're brought in, they are now pressured. They're faced with a decision. They're slaves, so they don't have a lot of power, remember? And they're brought into this kingdom, and they're put on this pagan diet. They're, they're told, you're going to eat this way. You're going to live this way. You're going to worship this way. This is what it looks like to be in the palace here in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. Well, these are Jewish men. And so just diet alone causes a little bit of a problem if you know anything about the Torah. God had given the people of Israel certain commands through the Mosaic Covenant, the Torah. And the purpose was, hey, you people in Israel, you are going to be throughout the rest of your existence, you're going to be surrounded by people of all sorts of pagan nations. And so I'm going to give to you certain laws, whether it be ceremonial law, whether it be um, national law, or whether it be moral law, I'm going to give you certain things that you're going to live by that's going to set you apart from the rest of the world. Now, some of the laws that they were given were moral issues, that it is, it is a sinful thing to engage in adultery, or it is a sinful thing to murder someone else. But some of the things were what's called ceremonial law, custom law, that were given not so much because the thing itself is bad, but it was God's way of marking who his people are, and causing them to sit out from or, or stand out from the nations that were around them. So, for example, some of the dietary laws that existed there, though there's benefits to them and all that, um, it's generally agreed that the primary function of much of the early ceremonial law, especially with regards to uh, dietary customs, was to say, look, you're going to look different. Um, you're going to be surrounded by people of all these different nations, but, but you're going to stand out in how you worship, how you govern, how you care for one another, how you even do things that other nations would never even consider, like how you care for the alien or how you care for the poor. You're going to operate different, and as such, you're going to stand out. And the reason for this is rooted even further back into the Abrahamic covenant. When God comes to Abraham and he tells him, he says, I'm going to make a nation out of you, and I'm going to bless you, and through you will all the nations of the world be blessed. So from the very beginning, when God summons and gathers his people together, they are told from the very beginning, you're going to be a missionary nation. You're going to live different and look different, and there's a purpose behind all of this. And so Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, these are good Jewish men who want to live according to the Torah and want to honor God and what they're doing. And they're brought into the palace and told, your dietary laws aren't going to work anymore. This is what you're going to eat. And so we see this first instance here in the book where these men in God's kingdom are being forced by the culture that they're a part of now and being told that they need to compromise, that they need to fit in. And they're not willing to do that, which is a risky move. I would imagine a lot of slaves in the Babylonian palace under King Nebuchadnezzar didn't have great life expectancies. 
especially when they were telling the king, um, no. But these men stand up for what they believe and they go to the king and they say, I tell you what, just watch how we will be healthier, we will be stronger, just watch how God honors this and through that, they make the decision to stick with the ceremonial law. They, they choose faithfulness to the Torah. And in the end, it leads to exaltation as they look and go, man, look at the benefit of this. And so their faithfulness leads to exaltation and even greater influence within the, 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 the actual palace of the place where they are brought in as exiles. Chapter 1. Don't worry, they'll get shorter. Chapter 2. We're told this Incredible story about the king's dream. King Nebuchadnezzar now, these men have ascended into a position of greater preeminence. They're, they've been exalted within the kingdom. And then the king has a dream. And he's really troubled by this dream. And he doesn't really know what to make of it. And so he gathers all of his men of Chaldean influence, all these pagan witchcraft and diviners and all this kind of stuff, diviners, diviners, however you say that word, brings them all in. And he's like, I've had this dream and I need to know what it means. Um, but just so that I know that you're telling me the truth and you're not just making something up, I, I need you to tell me what the actual dream is and then tell me the interpretation of it. And of course, the men are like, uh, man, are you smoking something, king? Like, how in the world are we supposed to do that? And it's at the threat of their life if they're not getting this right. It's a big issue. And then there's this beautiful passage in Daniel chapter 2, verse 28, where Daniel is brought in before the king, and, and Daniel tells him, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. It's a beautiful passage, <coughs> and in some ways, a theme throughout the rest of the book of Daniel. And so Daniel reveals this dream to him, and he, say, he talks about the fact that the king had had this dream of this big statue that's made of four different types of metals, the top one being uh, made out of, uh, I lost it, I lost it. Um, anyway, four different types of metals, and the top one actually symbolizes the Babylonian Empire that is currently in power. And each of these different metals represents a different kingdom that has walked on the face of the earth. And then this rock comes out of nowhere and comes in, smashes the statue into a billion pieces, and becomes a mountain. And he's telling him, hey, here are these kingdoms of the earth that have been antagonistic towards God. They've walked in pride. They've walked in their own arrogance. And God in heaven is sovereign over all. And the day is coming when those kingdoms are going to be crushed. And then God's kingdom will be established. And he will heal the nations all around through his justice and through his mercy. And Nebuchadnezzar is blown away, even worships God over this chapter 3. Maybe the more famous, I think there's a VeggieTale one on this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Is there a VeggieTale story in there? Um, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the fiery furnace, you guys know the story here. Another law is enacted, another statue is erected, it, uh, it involves worship of King Nebuchadnezzar, and they refuse to bow down before this statue, and so the next thing you know, they're told, if you don't bow down, you're going into the fiery furnace, and these men again choose what? Faithfulness. Even in spite of the threat that's against them, they choose faithfulness. You guys know how the story goes. They're thrown into the fiery furnace, and the king looks in, and, and they're not burned at all. And in fact, he sees a fourth figure, he says, who looks as the son of man who's among them there. Many people believe that that's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ and, and use that to teach Jesus out of the text, which I think is a very faithful way of being able to use the text. It's incomplete. Because it still leaves Jesus in the Old Testament, but we'll push into the New Testament a little bit later. But it's a good way of looking at the text, and that's what happens. These men are, are saved and then exalted. Why? Because of their faithfulness to God, even in the pressures to submit and compromise to the pressures of the culture that they're in. Their faithfulness leads to exaltation. Chapter 4. Now, chapter 4 and chapter 5 are parallels of one another. They're very similar, though they're two different kings. Dreams, foretellings that are going to happen to these kings who walk in arrogance. So in chapter 4, we have the first one, the guy we've been dealing with here so far, King Nebuchadnezzar. So King Nebuchadnezzar has this vision. There's this vision of a, a tree, this massive tree that grows high into the skies, this giant strong tree, but then it is hewn down and all the branches are removed and the leaves are stripped off of it and the tree is absolutely destroyed. And, and he is told that this, this, this tree represents um, you. 
because you've grown strong and mighty, but you're in rebellion against God and you're refusing to submit to his authority. You're, you're walking in your own arrogance, building your own kingdom. You are rejecting and even persecuting the very people of God. <coughs> and you may look at yourself now as being massive and powerful and untouchable, but there is a God in heaven who is over you and your kingdom is going to be taken away. And in fact, if you refuse to repent, you're going to end up like a wild animal out in the fields chewing on grass. Well, the king chooses not to repent and sure enough, it comes upon him and he is ends up as a wild animal. It talks about how the moisture was in the hair of his body and he's like chewing grass. He literally goes mad and is kicked out into this field like a wild beast where he then repents to God and is restored and bring, brought back in and worships God. We see that the refusal to bow before God, even as king, causes him to be something different than human. And in his repentance and submission to God, he is restored. Chapter 5 talks about his, his son, Belshazzar. Belshazzar is the famous story that many of you guys know. There's a big drunken feast. And everybody's gathered together partying and suddenly right in the middle of this giant feast. Sorry, this thing's moving around, guys. I'll try not to, I'm trying to keep it still. Right in the middle of this massive feast, this hand appears and writes these words on the wall. And then the king is freaked out. It says that his color changes. In other words, he's gone pale. It's like he's seen a ghost, doesn't know what it means, brings in all their advisors again. Nobody can tell them what it means. They don't understand it. And Daniel ends up being the only one who can interpret it. <coughs> the words are mene, mene, if I'm pronouncing it right, which means Daniel tells him stands for God has numbered the days of your kingdom and has brought it to an end. The next word is tekel, T-E-K-E-L, which means you have been weighed and found wanting. You're not measuring up. And then the last word, Perez, your kingdom is divided and will be given to the Medes and the Persians is the interpretation that's given. So Daniel, again, is telling this guy. Now, again, this is a king operating his own power, his own arrogance, refuses to honor God, persecuting God's people, building an empire at the expense of God's people with no acknowledgement to God whatsoever. And here comes this vision again that says, I, I know you think you're untouchable, but it's not true. Your kingdom's been brought to an end. Interestingly, he says that your, your kingdom has been brought to an end. And he says, you've been weighed and found wanting, and your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then that very night, Belshazzar is assassinated. It's kind of an abrupt ending to that story. Then they just move right on into chapter 6. Chapter 6 maybe being the most famous of all of the stories within the book of Daniel, primarily because it's the title character in it, Daniel and the Lion's Den. You guys know that story well. <coughs> Daniel refuses to bow down to the king, refuses to pray, continues to honor God and live and worship the way he knows he needs to do, honoring the Torah, living as God's servant, even though he's a servant in a completely different culture. As a result, he's thrown into the lion's den where they're certain that he's going to be ripped to shreds, and yet he is preserved and his faithfulness to being what God has called him to be again ends with Daniel being exalted. Famous, famous passage. Now at this point, the text starts to change. And it moves into what's referred to in a lot of ways as more apocalyptic language. Um, apocalyptic texts in the Bible use much more vivid in, uh, imagery, much more um, uh, almost bizarre pictures animals, all sorts of descriptions, usually used to point towards some ultimate end. Um, if you read through the book of Revelation, you see things about the beasts and the dragon and that much of those things are even echoing what's actually said here or even straight up quoting what's actually said here in the book of Daniel. And so in chapter 7, it starts out with Daniel. He has this dream. Um, and it's interesting because he, here's the guy who's been interpreting these dreams all along, but now he, he doesn't know. He has this dream and he has no idea what it actually means. He doesn't know the interpretation and this angel comes and actually gives the interpretation to him, tells him what it means. And the dream is of these four great beasts. 
And these beasts symbolize these great kings among the earth. Um, and each one is just this, again, this kind of apocalyptic, almost bizarre imagery. There's one that's like a lion. There's one that's like a bear. There's one that's like a winged leopard. And the fourth beast is different than the other three beasts. It, it's, like a, uh, it's like a super beast. It's like a mega beast that's even bigger and more fierce and more arrogant and more rebellious than any of the other beasts. All of these are pictured as walking in great pride and arrogance against anything that God would have them to do. <laughs> Rejecting God's rule to establish their own. And this fourth beast, which is so different, this super beast has all of these horns, which um, horns on the head of a beast in the Old Testament is a real, real common um, way of signifying or speaking of different kings. And so there's these different horns which recognize or symbolize these different kings, but there's this one horn that stands out way above the other one. It symbolizes a very wicked king who persecutes God's people, um, who in the dream are symbolized by this character known as the Son of Man. And so there's this great king that is persecuting the Son of Man. And because of this, God is anger, and he's been, this king has exalted himself above all others and above God. And then God appears. And, and in this vision, God's referred to as the Ancient of Days, as you maybe have heard that reference or that name for God before. And he comes, he sets up his throne, he destroys the great beast, and this Son of Man is exalted and brought up to sit at the right hand of God as he establishes his kingdom and reigns forever. And then in chapter 8, Daniel has another vision, which is tied in many ways to the vision in chapter 8, particularly to the last two beasts that are in the previous vision. In chapter 8, he has a vision about a ram and a goat. Um, and we are told that the ram symbolizes the Medes and the Persians, the goat, ancient Greece. And again, there's these horns and there's this one big horn or this one symbolizing this one big king um, that has stood out above all the others and, and exalted himself. This is common phrasing that you got to keep hearing, has exalted himself above God steps out of that order that we read in, in Psalm chapter 8. Instead of being under God and using the rule and dominion that God's given him to serve under God, has taken this power and stepped out from the covering of God and exalted himself above God. That's the language that gets used over and over in this book. And, and in this case, there's this evil king who's going to attack Jerusalem and exalt himself above God. He's going to desecrate the temple, um, but then he will be destroyed eventually by God, and God will again establish his kingdom and judge these beasts. So chapter 9 comes along. So Daniel's had all these visions, and over and over there's this pattern. There's a king or there's a kingdom, exalts himself, persecutes God's people, steps out of the created order, using his authority to exalt himself above God, and then there's this judgment because the kingdom of God comes, God judges the beast, sets things back, and there seems to be this recurring pattern. Well, meantime, here's Daniel as one of God's people in the persecution. So the obvious question for a guy like that is, okay, when? Because, because we're being persecuted. And so it would be awesome to see that ancient of days appear right now and deal with what it is that we're going through. And so Daniel's wrestling with that. And Daniel, or excuse me, yeah, Daniel chapter 9, we see Daniel actually goes to the book of Jeremiah. Because in the book of Jeremiah, it is told that because of Israel's unfaithfulness to God, they're going to be exiled for 70 years. And so Daniel, trying to figure out, man, when is this going to happen? When are we not going to be under the oppression of these evil kings anymore? When will we be, be free? When will that kingdom be reestablished and everything set right? He goes to the book of Daniel and begins to look at it, and he sees this 70-year prophecy, and the 70 years is almost up. And so he goes to God, and he begins to just pray and beg God in Daniel chapter 9 that he would just deliver them. And there's this just beautiful, heartfelt prayer where Daniel just goes to God. And in particular, in Daniel 9, verse 16 and 17, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around, without, around us. 
Now therefore, O God, please listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. He's going to God as this time period seems to be ending, and he's begging God for mercy. Lord, please end this. Like your people are a joke to these kingdoms around here. They're a byword. They're a, they're a punchline. They're meaningless. Lord, your, your sanctuary is in shambles. Your name is almost unrecognized among people around here. Lord, please come and deliver us and show your mercy. It's a good prayer. And he gets the worst possible answer he could ever want out of this prayer. The actual, as it goes on, Gabriel, the archangel, comes and he brings a prayer to him. And you know what he says? You know, Israel's still rebellious and they've refused to repent. And so because of their hard-heartedness and refusal to repent and turn to God, that 70-year prophecy is now, and it's referred to in the text as, as a 70 or seven weeks. In other words, seven times the judgment is now going to be enacted on Israel um, as a result of their rebelliousness. Not exactly a text that most people looking to esteem things like prosperity gospel are going to want to turn to. Like, here's this... <laughs> Such a humble prayer. Lord, please come and save us. No, actually, it's going to be even longer than you think. And it's really sad. And then we go into chapters 10 through 12, where we have Daniel's final vision. And we see the kings of Persia and Greece and lesser kings. And then we're told about this king from the north who's going to invade Israel and exalt himself above God again. You see the same pattern happening over and over um, before he ends up coming to ruin. And the text just sort of ends. There's some parting instruction to them to just wait. Just wait. And this is the book of Daniel. So what's the point of all that? Well, what does all this stuff refer to? How to approach all these visions and all these prophecies and all these things about different kingdoms and different kings and the horn that comes and exalt himself has become the subject of debate among Christians for so long. There's an insane amount of argument about what all these things mean. Some say, well, they're referring to the Syrian king, Antiochus Epiphanes, who would eventually come into Jerusalem. He would desecrate the Jewish temple. He would destroy and kill many innocent Jewish people. <coughs> this is that king that's going to come down and desecrate this, and, and God's going to come in and smash him and eventually judge him. And that did actually happen. And so there's some that would say that this is what we're talking about here in the book of Daniel. Other people say, well, this is teaching us about all of these kingdoms culminating with the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, which became an even greater kingdom than the Babylonian Empire and whose reach extended across essentially the known world at the time and how they didn't just come in, but they killed Jesus. They killed the promised Messiah and then in 70 AD came into Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, destroyed the city, murdered tons of Jewish people, and then eventually their kingdom would come to ruin and that's what the book of Daniel is telling us about. And then there's others that would say, no, you, you need to look at the apocalyptic language that's here. I mean, yeah, there's elements of some of that, but what it's really talking about is a future kingdom that we haven't even seen yet, a future ruler. Many of you may know or have heard him referred to as the Antichrist, who will come in and be powered even by Satan and will come and set up this kingdom above God and demand worship of himself and he'll desecrate the temple and he'll persecute God's people, but then that will come to an ultimate end when Jesus returns, squashes and destroys Antichrist, throws him away, calls his people up to his right hand, very similar to the dream that we saw, and then the people of God will rule and reign with God forever as his kingdom is ultimately established. And there's elements of that too. And then there's others that say it's all three of them. There's others that say, well, there's, there's prophetic angles to what happened in the short term and then what happens in the long term. And so we should approach these things. Here's the one thing I'll tell you. The honest truth is this. There are gaps and inconsistencies with every single one of those interpretations when you try to force all of those things into one specific formula. Really, a better way of looking at it is to say, 
actually, there's a way that all of the things that we're studying here in the book of Daniel, the things that Daniel teaches us actually apply um, and are even speaking to, in some ways, it matches all of them more than it matches one of them, if that's the case. But here's what I know. Many people, for a long time, have taken these prophecies and tried to use them as some sort of a roadmap to be able to tell specific future events for us, including even timelines. Um, using the prophecy of the weeks to establish here is exactly when the world's going to end. Men like Hal Lindsey, Harold Camping, even Chuck Smith wrote a book in the 70s that I think has been uh, put away very uh, carefully since then, where many people have taken some of these things and said, here's how we can take the prophecies of Daniel and we can work these things out and we can put together this timeline so that we know exactly the day that Jesus is going to return and that he's going to smash these things. And that's really the point of this. It's a prophetic timeline to tell us when the world's going to end. And here, here's the problem with that. As you know, we believe the Bible was written by real people in real time to real people in real time. So it can't just mean an end of days timeline that wouldn't even do them any good because it wouldn't take place for another thousands and thousands of years. There's got to be something different behind that. I mean, God otherwise comes off as some sort of galactic tease with them. I'm going to give you the answer but I might as well not because it's not going to do you any good anyway. So just write it down. People in thousands of years are going to need it, but until then, everyone's going to be confused. Like that's not the way scripture works. That's not the way it is. It was written to real people in real time. And here's what I believe all of these things actually are pointing to, what the overall point of the book of Daniel. If you're reading these things and you're Daniel in exile or you're Daniel's people maybe gathered together in his room one night as he's telling some of these things to you, what's the overall purpose of actually what's being told here is Daniel is offering hope to all generations who are going through incredible opposition and difficulty. He's offering hope to exiles. So then what does that mean to us? Let me give you guys just a few things to take away and then we're going to be done. And I'm actually trying to, I just want to let you know in advance, not only because I have to teach three times this week, including the Good Friday service, not only because I have a cold, but every Thursday morning when I teach here, I get made fun of at the staff meetings for going long every single Thursday. So I'm not going to have that happen tomorrow. So we're going to get done on time tonight is what we're going to do. So I just want to give you some points to take away because this is the idea again of our series. Our point is you can't take the book of Daniel and teach the whole book of Daniel in one night. You can't possibly do that. But I want to give you some frameworks by which hopefully you guys will go from here and say, okay, I'm going to do some reading in the book of Daniel. And it'll give you things to be able to keep in the back of your mind or in the forefront of your mind as you're reading through these things. So it can help you understand what to do with a text when you're reading through it on your devotional morning. And it starts talking about a leopard with wings or a beast with giant horns sticking out of the top of his head. Like how does that help you at all on Thursday when you're going to work? Well, here's what I'm going to tell you. Number one is this. I'm going to give you four things. First is this. Humans become beasts when they do not acknowledge God. Humans become beasts. And I mean this literally. And, and here's why I can say this. God designed people, humans, to live a certain way, in a certain manner, in a certain order under God's rule. And so to not acknowledge God, who is the source of life and our creator, to not acknowledge the God that we were created to live in fellowship with, to not acknowledge God whom has given us dominion to live and rule under his coverage, to not do those things is to not fulfill some of the things that actually make us human in the first place. The only people that are fully human are the people of God who are choosing to live as God's people under God's rule because that's an actual important element of the way we were designed to even be. So to take elements of that and to say, I will not live with that man over me. I will live with my own power and with my own authority. We become beasts. We become no different than the animal that wants to rule by force, that wants to serve his own needs, serve his own desires, serve his own appetite, and have no issue whatsoever, no moral, no moral backbone. No, no, none of those things matter anymore. You just become about power and authority and strength. You become beasts. 
And I think what we see even through this over and over with these dreams, these kingdoms are erected and they're supposed, like God created the concept of kingdoms. He, he's the, the originator of what government even looks like. And yet when these kingdoms step out of the authority of God and they somehow begin to wield this authority as if it was their own, and they begin to erect their own kingdom instead of living for the kingdom of God. They have set aside part of what the absolute, it's the very definition of what it means to be human. Part of that is that we were created as humans to live in relationship with God in a, in a specific way. And so when you set that aside, you become beasts. This draws from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, from the authority given Adam over animals. The text in Psalm 8 when we step outside of God's authority, we become something less than human. And, and, and isn't it interesting, though, that those who oppose um, the Christian worldview would say that, no, humans should be free to kind of develop into their own sort of human nature, but you're actually taking an essential element of what it even means to be human, and you're throwing it away when you're rejecting God's rule. So humans become beasts when they do not acknowledge God. The second thing is this. <coughs> Kings change, God does not. When you're reading through the book of Daniel, you see king after king after king. You see allusions to kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. And even when you step back and just read the Bible as a whole, you see kingdom and king and empire after kingdom and king and empire. And then even stepping out from the biblical narrative and looking at just the history that we have access and the ability to be able to see ourselves. We see empires and nations and powers and superpowers, do we not? And they come and go. And every empire thinks they're the one that's going to stay. Every king in every massive empire thinks they're the ones that figured it out and they're the ones that are going to stay forever. But the kingdoms of the earth change over and over and over. And I, I love, do not call me a non-patriot. I love America, but we will not last and we're not supposed to. God is the one who exists. God is the one who, who is, is the same. The ancient of days. Even that name alone is like, hey, I've been around a while. And the kings keep coming and going, but I'm still here. And this is the idea. Every kingdom changes. And so we should keep that in mind when we're choosing what kingdoms we're going to live for. The third thing is this. That could be dark, right? That could be depressing. Like, oh, man, well... So it could be just like the Medes, just like the Persians, just like the Syrians, just like the Babylonians, just like the Greece, uh, the Greeks, just like the Romans. It could be just like that for us. Yeah, absolutely could. And if we could live long enough, I, I would venture to say one day it will. But it's not dark for the people of the kingdom of God because the third point is this: Christians have hope. So, in, in the old, uh, in these these ancient Near Eastern times, when when a kingdom would come into another land and they would take over a city or a nation and take these people captive, it was believed that their gods were superior to the gods of the other people. And so, one of the things that they would do to kind of simplify or simplify, yeah, I'll roll with it. Simplify this. <coughs> Excuse me. Cold medicine. I'm on, I'm on real Sudafed, not that Oregon garbage. You know what I mean? I could make meth tonight. Um, <coughs> could, not will. Um, so, so what they would do is when they would go into these nations and they would take over these people, one of the things they would do is they would take artifacts from the places of worship to that God there and bring them back to the places of worship in their homeland as trophies to show our God is more superior than the other God there. You see this in the book of Daniel, in Daniel 1 chapter, or excuse me, Daniel chapter 1 verse 2. It speaks about how he, the, uh, and the Lord gave Je Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, into the house of his God, and placed the vessels in his treasury of his God. So you see that this is taking place. There's this belief that the pagan gods have won, and the God of Israel has lost. And here's something interesting. If you read through the Bible, whenever you find apocalyptic literature, 
Um, whether it's things that Jesus spoke about in the New Testament, whether it's John the Revelator as he wrote from the island of Patmos of the revelation God had given him, or whether it's Daniel here in this case. Anytime there's apocalyptic literature, it's always written in a time when it would seem like God is nowhere to be found and everything's hopeless. In each case, this vision of hope is given to the author in a time where it seems like God has lost and has no hope. I mean, what hope would they have? They're under the Babylonian empire at its heights. And even the guy that the vision's being given to is just a servant in the palace. Who is he? And yet in each of these cases and in these visions, we see over and over God saying, watch and see. This oppression's not going to continue. My kingdom's going to come. These people that you think have all the power over you and you have no hope to ever come out from under it, they will be judged. They think their gods have beat me. Little do they know, all of this is actually playing out to accomplish my purposes anyway, and they're going to be dealt with. And it has happened over and over and over. But it's not just hope that judgment's going to come against the oppressive, but it's hope that this new kingdom's going to come that's going to heal the earth all around. Like this, this new kingdom is going to be established that's going to give mercy and justice. Like think about it. You're a slave carried off into exile. Wouldn't the concept of justice be like water to a parched mouth? And God is promising in every one of these prophecies over and over and over, the guilty will be dealt with and my kingdom will be established. We have hope. And the reason that we have hope is because our Savior, Jesus Christ himself, was exiled from God the Father because of our sin on our behalf. But he rose from the dead and conquered that sin so that now we can be adopted into the family of that kingdom. So we're now not just slaves in some kingdom, but we're joint heirs, the text tells us, that we will rule and reign with God in this kingdom throughout eternity. So as Christians, we know the reality that the kingdoms of this earth, they come and go. And more often than not, before they go, they end up so consumed with pride that it becomes absolutely opposed to everything that has anything to do with God. And we could get so caught up in that that we're constantly fighting to protect the specific kingdom that we're in and keep it from getting to that point. And yet we see how the whole revelatory plan of God lays out and we realize we're living for a different kingdom. And we're citizens of a different kingdom because we have hope, which is point four, which it comes into. The follower of God in the book of Daniel is told how to live in light of this hope. Daniel is in exile in a foreign land. And we are told through the visions and through the faithfulness of Daniel how we're supposed to live. And I want you to see this. I told you we're going to be in Jeremiah. I want you to see this. And the reason we're going here is because <coughs> not only is God giving them instruction on how they're going to live when they're taken into exile, but it's the very text actually too that Daniel himself goes to when he's trying to sort out some of the questions about Babylonian exile when he lives there. So in Jeremiah chapter 29... There's a famous text that probably some of you has had as a bumper sticker before, right? For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not evil to give you a future and a hope. Everybody knows that text, right? If you've ever been or ever seen Thomas Kincaid paintings or any of those kind of things, we, we all know that verse. It's a great, great verse. But the context of that verse is so applicable, not just to them, but to us, because here's what was happening. The people of Israel are being carried into captivity. They're going to become essentially slaves in a Babylonian land, exiled from their own land. They were God's people living in the land that God had given them, and they were supposed to live under God's rule and God's authority, but because they had rebelled against this and God had told them this was going to happen, you can read all about this in Deuteronomy chapter 29 or 28 through 30. They were told, you're going to be carried away. The blessing of God will be removed from you because you violated this covenant that I have with you and you're going to be carried off. And so they're told that this is what's going to happen. And Jeremiah, when Jeremiah comes on the scene and he's writing to the people of Israel, you guys know this because you just covered this one about two weeks ago, right? Jeremiah's coming in to remind them, hey, we knew this was coming. 
And he's begging them to repent, but he's also telling them, um, listen, when this happens, here's what's going to happen. So the people of Israel are being carried into captivity, and there's competing voices about what their life should look like when they get there. Um, The first one, the Babylonians have a suggestion. And their plan is, we're going to carry you out of your land. We're going to carry you away from your house of worship. We're going to carry you away from your capital city and where all of your promises and where all of your history has been. And we're going to bring you into our land. And I want you, we want you, you're going to move into the city. You're going to move into the city of Babylon. And over the next however many years or however many generations, you're going to just completely assimilate into the culture. And the idea would be that in the next two, three, four generations, there would be no more Israelite. There would be no more Jew. They've bred in, they've adopted the customs, all of these things. They've lost their Jewish identity, and they've brought on now the identities of the Babylonian people. And as time goes on, they would not exist anymore. So the Babylonians want them to move into the city and assimilate to reject their, um, their, their uh, identity as the people of Israel and eventually cease to exist. Well, there were some prophets for Israel that they had a different idea that you learn about in Jeremiah chapter 28. Men like Hananiah who come in and they say, here's what we're supposed to do. And they do it very, thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. This is what we're supposed to do. We're going to stay on the, the, um, uh, the something, something valley. I forget the name. doesn't matter. We're going to stay right on the outsides of the city. We're going to stay right here on the edge. We're not going to fully move into the city. We're going to stay as far away from the heartbeat of all this stuff as they'll actually let us get away with. And we're going to retain our identity as Jews and have nothing to do with this world that we've been exiled into. And then Jeremiah comes with the actual word from the Lord and he calls that guy a false prophet. Now that sounds right, doesn't it? Like you've been pulled out of your land and you've been told you're going to go over here and you know that they want you to assimilate and eventually disappear. But Jeremiah comes in and says, that is not what God has for us. That's a false prophet that's telling us to just stay away and retain our identity. And he comes in and he says, look at verse four, Jeremiah 29. I'm not going to finish on time. Verse four. (coughs) Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. and Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to their dreams that they dream for it is a, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back from the place from which I sent you into exile. So the Babylonians say, move into the city and lose your identity as Jews. The false prophets say, stay out of the city and retain our identity as Jews. God's answer is move into the city and retain your identity as the people of God. And serve them. Pray for them. Be still what I told you you would be to Abraham. You're going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Yes, you've been carried into exile, but you are missionaries and ambassadors of a different kingdom while you're here. And that, maybe more than anything that we've talked about right now, is what applies to us today. Because in the book of Daniel, regardless of what the timelines are, regardless of what each beast specifically symbolizes, what kingdom it means or what ruler it is, regardless of whether it happened in AD 70 or whether it's going to happen at the end of the day, in the book of Daniel we see we have hope, God is going to return, he's going to set up his kingdom, and in the meantime, we are to be faithful. 
We're to retain our identity as the people of God, but we're not to separate from the world that's there. We're to be ambassadors of a different kingdom while we're there. Now, here's what I mean by this. We see this language over and over in the, in the New Testament. In Philippians 3.20, we're told our citizenship is where? Anyone know? In heaven. Not in America, not in Israel. That would have been, I mean, that's Peter saying that. Like Mr. Jew himself, Peter, he's saying our citizenship's not as Jews. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, that was Paul in Philippians. In 1 Peter, that's the one I was meant here. In Peter, he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which make war against your soul. We're told over and over and over in the New Testament that the believers of God, when we have been adopted into the family of God, our citizenship and our identity changes, and we are now members of and part of the kingdom of God, and we're to live as exiles. Now, here's what I mean specifically for America when I'm talking about exiles, because here's where I think people take it the wrong way. Some people go, Christians in America right now are exiles because what our country used to be like was what it was like in the good old days when churches were full and where people prayed before every joint session of Congress and where we all learned our Bibles and kids even learned to read by reading Bibles and all those kind of things. That was great. That's all awesome. But that's still living for the wrong kingdom. There's a lot of people that they feel like we are living as exiles because the nation that we're really a part of, we lost in the 50s or 60s or whenever it was, and we should be living like that again. And I would say that is absolutely wrong. Christians don't live for the past. Christians live for the future. And we're citizens of a completely different kingdom to come. That way, if America were to continue to slide down that slippery scale and become, God forbid, another of those ungodly nations that God has to come in and judge, just like he did the people in Babylon, we still have hope because our hope is in the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of America. And I think there's way too many Christians throughout the last 40 years of American history that have spent all of our effort trying to rebuild the good old days of what it looked like to be a Christian in America instead of pushing forward and living as exiles but missionaries of the kingdom of God that's still to come. And that's what it means to be exiles. Russell Moore himself, if you don't follow that guy online or something, you really should. Russell Moore said this, the kind of exiles we are is to not, a, we are not a bitter, resentful people hearkening back to better days when we had more power or influence. We are instead to be those that know that the culture around us, no matter what that culture is, is temporary. And we are to pattern our lives not after nostalgia for the past, but hope to the future. We live for a kingdom to come. And so now, we want to, just like the, they were told in the Babylonians. We pray for the cities we're in now. We pray for the culture we're in now. We use everything from our vote to whatever influence we have because in the welfare of the city we live in, we find even our own welfare. And we know that to be true, right? I mean, look at the welfare of the Christians in America versus the welfare of those, for example, in Syria right now. So, so we know that that's true. But that's not what we're living for. And that's not what our hope is for. Because even in that command to the people of Israel in Jeremiah, when God was telling them, hey, go into the city and bless them and be part of society and all those things, what was he still pointing them towards? One day I'm going to come and get you. Do well while you're there. Serve them. Love them. But just keep this hope. You're going to call out to me. And one day I'm going to be there. And you're not going to be in exile to those people anymore. And so for us, we don't point to a kingdom past. We point to a kingdom to come. And we say, man, we are members of the kingdom of God. And as much as I love America, I love our nation, even being in London for a week, that you get to this point where you're like, I just want to go home. Like, this is the greatest nation on earth still to this day. Amen? But this is not my home. And this is not our primary citizenship. Your identity when you were saved by Jesus Christ, you became a citizen of the kingdom of God. And that huh, trumps everything else. It trumps everything else. And so what do we do? We live with that hope and we be faithful. 
We live according to God's word. I mean, think of Daniel right off the bat. He's being challenged to compromise. Well, man, if you want to have influence in this kingdom, Daniel, think about it. You're going to be in this palace and you're going to have opportunity to influence things. You just do, just put the dietary thing aside. It's just food. Just make this compromise and it'll work out. You'll have influence. And who knows, maybe you can affect that and bring the food back later. And he was like, no, I will not compromise. I will be faithful to the king I actually live under, not to the kings that are in rebellion against that king, no matter what that means. And I'll trust that that king has a future and a hope for me like he promises in Jeremiah, whether I get thrown into a fiery furnace or not. But I will not compromise. I will love, I will work with, I will not judge any more than I need to. I will come alongside people and love them and I will try to call them to a better way of living, but I will not cave to what my king has called me to live. I'll be faithful and I'm gonna trust, just like we see in Daniel over and over and over, he exalts his people. Their faithfulness led to exaltation. Their faithfulness led to greater influence. And when we become like everyone else, we will lose all of our influence for the kingdom of God because we won't be any different than the rest of them. And God has called us to be different, holy, separate. Amen? That's the book of Daniel. Let's stand and pray. (coughs) Father, will you help us with that? It's really easy to live under the fear of man because that's seemingly what we're faced with every single day. Sometimes, Lord, it just feels so much more tangible. And sometimes, Lord, your promises, because of our limited sight as frail humans, we we feel like sometimes those, those things, your kingdom feels so far away. But help us to understand that the kingdom of God is at hand, that you rule now, no matter what it looks like around us, that we have hope. May we point to that kingdom to come. And I pray, God, that that you will just empower us to live faithfully. May we be those who repent when we've walked away from you. May we desire holiness. May we seek your word and your will and your direction. May we trust you no matter what the culture around us looks like. May we be faithful ambassadors of the kingdom to come. Lord, help us to do that to a greater and greater degree. I pray your blessing on all these that are here, Lord. May they be able to chew on these things. May you show them how these things are applicable to their very lives and each of their specific situations. Show them, Father, how they can continue to point to the kingdom to come, no matter what part of the culture they're a part of tomorrow and in other days. And I pray, God, you would grant them with favor and influence for those they're around, just as you did with with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. May they be people who can provide hope and counsel to people that are dealing with difficult situations because of you, our King. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. I hope to see you Friday night, 630 at the Good Friday service. Love you guys.